Now, when you now, there are categories or different levels of these jhanas, and in the Buddhist tradition, they enumerate eight. Sometimes they have nine, but for our purpose, we talk about eight. And um, and um, now, different teachers of jhana of these absorptions have different criteria for what constitutes a jhana, what qualifies. So if you read different books about this topic, you'll find different teachers have different ideas about it. Some people, um, um, and it's, it's, it's not really fair to, um, to maybe judge, it, judge different people, but they have some people, um, um, a friend of mine kind of evaluated different teachers of jhana, and he says, well, uh, this teacher, he has jhana light. What qualifies, for, what qualifies for him as a jhana is really light. And he allows the student, the practitioner, to still have some thinking going on in that state. And then, uh, and this teacher here, he's jhana heavy. And, uh, and not only is there no thinking, but there's no self-awareness. You don't even know, you don't even realize what happened until you, until you come out of the state. And um, so it's that powerful. You're so absorbed that you kind of, in a sense, lost. Where, where, you know, you're really present, but you're not exactly aware of what's going on. So when you come out, then you can review what happened and you realize what was going on. So there are different teachings, different ideas about what it is. Probably, uh, my theory is that, because um, I haven't studied all these teachers, don't know what their story is, but my kind of theory these days is that um, each of these eight jhanas can be experienced at different levels of intensity. And so some people are experiencing it at a mild intensity, some at a strong intensity, but it still involves the same qualitative shift. So there are eight jhanas, eight absorptions. Some teachers will refuse to talk to their students about, about them. The students will say, have I reached the first jhana yet? I'm in the second or third. And there's, there's, a, there's a, someone wrote an article recently called um, uh, uh, jhana without numbers. <laughs> and um, and uh, there's some sometimes rather unfortunate things that happen about you know jhanas and ambition and you know, measuring where am I and I'm you know this level and where are you and I'm better than you know and all this you know neurosis around anxiety around jhanas and all that. Some teachers don't talk about it at all, but rather what they focus on is um, is paying attention to what are the mental factors that come into play as a person gets concentrated and then beginning to help the student work with those factors so the concentration gets deeper and deeper without putting it into some you know, measurement, some, some categories, first, second, or third absorption. But, it, but, but the principle behind going deeper and deeper into these states of, of absorption is going from, more, from coarser mental activity to more refined. And so as we go deeper, we, what we're learning to do is, is to let go of coarser and coarser, but relatively, coarser, and coarser mental activity um, until the mind gets more and more refined, more still, more rarefied. And it's amazing the rarefied states that can, that can arise, uh, that can occur. Um, so at the first absorption, the, uh, there are five factors which are, are present, that are important, that are, that are recognized. 
And these are the five that we focused on in access concentration. So it's uh, the initial and sustained application of attention, joy, happiness, and one-pointedness. Of those five, the coarsest is the initial and the sustained application of attention, of attention, which takes intention, takes directing the mind to doing what you do. So in order to go from the first to the second, that doingness of the mind has to fall away. And mostly, uh, and it's kind of relaxed. There's various ways, different teachers have little different systems of how to get a person to go from one to the other. But, um, but kind of relax that course, that, I mean, not that course, but the relatively course. That's the coarsest thing, you relax it. And then um, we'll open up into the second. And that's characterized by the presence of, for now we can just say, the other three. And in particular, joy seems to be really strong. And um, so it's characterized by a lot of joy. And some teachers will actually encourage at this point the student to cultivate and strengthen that joy and really pervade it through the body, kind of just kind of like work it through the body and expand it and grow it and intensify the joy. And this is where uh, the joy can reach levels of rapture, um, phenomenal rapture that can happen. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, better than any kind of rapturous kind of experience that you could have in, in you know, non-meditative life. Um, some people don't have you know, peaks of rapture in this. Some people it's much more kind of mild, but there's this kind of uh, joy that's part of it. Um, the tradition has uh, five di- uh, lists five different kinds of joy that can happen. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I remember all of them right now, but there's momentary joy, just kind of like there's um, uh, cascading joy. There's uh, kind of flashes of joy. These kind of just flashes, sometimes flashes all over the body. There is um, you know, pervading joy, and you know, there's different kinds of joy. It's wonderful. Like the Eskimos have all these words for snow, supposedly. The Buddhists have all these words for joy. And uh, this cascading joy, I remember once um, I was going through very deep states of concentration like this and had a lot of this joy coming up. And, and um, the sitting ended, it was time to go have lunch. And I went to the dining, dining hall, I got my food, and managed to get my food. Because sometimes when you, when you're, uh, some, some people, when they go into these deep states, of alter, altered states, um, the, the sense of being altered stays with them after they come out. Some people seem to pop out pretty easily, but some people stay in it. So I was kind of, kind of in it, you know. I managed to get my food and sit down. And then the act of being focused on picking the fork of food up into my mouth, you know, it, it, takes, it takes some concentration, right, to do that. <laughs> and so somehow, my, my, seemingly, my system kind of locked back into the concentrated state, and I'd have these waves of joy just washed in my body and it was so intense I had to put the fork down. <laughs> and I sat there in the dining room for a long time without being able to eat because this is, you know, just... <laughs> you know, so um, it gives you maybe a little bit of sense of, you know, what can happen. And you know, some people get frightened by this and they've never had something so powerful. You know, what's this going on? Um, sometimes um, um, the symptoms of this rapture, this joy, the Pali word is piti, which is P-I-T-I. And um, sometimes uh, has sim- physical symptoms in the body which are not um, 
people normally wouldn't identify with joy or rapture. And, um, and so, so it's a little bit strange when you go to a teacher and they say, you say, these things are happening in my body. And they say, oh, that's good. Uh, you're having uh, joy. You're having rapture. What? And um, so that might happen to you maybe sometime. In uh, sometimes it can be shaking in the body. Uh, sometimes um, there can be um, uh, the body jerking in the body. <laughs> when I, I mean, I, I didn't want to tell you because um, it's not so so usual. And if I tell you, then you get frightened and think, you know, <laughs> you know, oh, this is supposed to happen or whatever. But but I, I tell you when when I um, one of the re- retreats I sat in um, Thailand. There was a good, te- nice teacher there. I sat with for a month. But he had a little bit, he had a little bit strange in the way he was guided me. And I showed up there. I was a, you know, introduced himself, myself as a Zen priest. I'd been in Japan. I had my Zen robes, and and so I guess he had a lot of hope for my ability to get concentrated. <laughs> I was like, good, a live one here, you know. He's going. <laughs> and um, so I had to go. And I had this little hut, and I sat alone day after day. But every day I had an interview with him, and so the interviews went along fine for a little while. And after a while, he started saying things like. Shaking yet? <laughs> Are you bouncing around yet? And I said, No, nothing's happening. You know, I don't have any specialty report. And finally, he said, Oh, you know, just you know, a few weeks ago, there was this Brazilian woman here, and she was just bouncing off the walls. <laughs> you know, as if you know, this, you know, symptoms of the rapture. Some people, when they have a strong rapture, have a feel as if their body is floating, like just gets really light and comes like lifting. Maybe that's where some of the stories are. People kind of saying they can fly when they meditate, just the body kind of seems to lift. Um, if you open your eyes, maybe you'll. F- <laughs> um, so um, one of the one of the, so some teachers when they want people to work with you know second jhana with a lot of joy, want you really get th- again not to go through it too quickly, but stay there, stabilizing it, get used to it, maybe until such a point where you begin thinking, realizing that this joy is a drag. Can you imagine that? You know, this is a drag. It's like too much. It's like all this energy happening all the time. It's like always being kind of wired or kind of, you know, kind of feeling really good. And it's kind of like you know, if you, you always have a smile on your face. If you, you know, I've smiled so much that I got tired. You know, it's enough of this smiling, please. <laughs> you know, you get so tired smiling. So, um, so um, like in some social situations where you know, you don't know, just smile, smile, smile. It's all, and. Um, so it's kind of like it's too much after a while. And so that, that when you feel feeling that's too much, then some of the enchantment, some of the attachment, some of the, uh, you know, that, with that joy begins to fade. And then at some point, the person lets go of the joy. And then what's, ha- what's, re- what's left is, is um, the happiness. And the happiness is much more sublime, much more satisfying than the joy. And, you know, it's, it's much, much better. Now, there's a kind of progression that happens you know, that's going on here. And I once in one retreat tried to bypass that, that progression because I thought the, the joy was kind of getting kind of old. I knew it was kind of like, you know, kind of, you know, relative, right? It was kind of like more near the surface. It's kind of not so deep. So I, I could feel the joy was going to start happening. I don't want anything to do with this. Uh, I just want to, I want to go for the deeper stuff. So I kind of held the joy at bay. Can you believe it? <laughs> you know, I'm not going to have this joy, you know, no thanks. <laughs> And, um, and I remember I was doing walking meditation and this was going on and I was just kind of keeping it down. And, um, and after a while, I started getting a headache. And so finally I said, this is ridiculous. 
I said, okay, I'm going to just let it happen. So the joy happened. Kind of, as soon as I let it happen, I just... And then, um, as soon as I let it happen, it passed really quickly too, and I dropped into deeper states. I didn't need to, you know, it was all this time spent repressing my joy. You know, it was just a waste of time. Um, so, so, so this, this progression goes on. And then, uh, uh, at some point, you get stabilized in the happiness, and at some point, you're trained to let go of the happiness. What? Isn't that the whole point? Mm-hmm. But there's something better than happiness. And uh, that is a state, uh, the fourth absorption, a state of equanimity, profound equanimity, uh, and um, where there's no, uh, there's very little or no pain in the jhanas. But in the fourth jhana, there's none at all. There's you know, such tremendous equanimity, there's tremendous balance. Sometimes, some, some people, the sense of the body disappears. You kind of, you, you kind of, your eyes are closed, so you can't, you know, but you, your eyes closed, you kind of, Try to look around or feel around to see if you still have a body, and you can't. You know, there's no evidence you have a body anymore. You know what happened to your body? I mean, you can open your eyes; it's still right there, right? It hasn't gone anywhere. But but uh, empirically, the way you kind of like sitting there, you just can't f- identify a body. Sometimes at this, um, if if it hasn't so- done happened earlier, so at this point, sometimes the breath seems to stop or has stopped, and you don't even notice you're breathing. You know, maybe there's no breath happening at all. And so, uh, and this tremendous sense of peace, of coolness, of equanimity. And you might have to take my word on it, but it's much more satisfying than the happiness that you had just let go of. So it's pretty great. <coughs> Some teachers who are into this kind of stuff will stop at that point. That's enough. If you get to the fourth jhana, that's more than you need. This is fine. <laughs> now let's get. Now let's do the real work. You know, this is just kind of this is just kind of warming up. Um, now let's start doing the mindfulness work. Let's, t- let's switch over to do vipassana, and that I'll talk about next week a little bit. About how the concentration practice is integrated with vipassana practice. Some teachers will have the students go continue and go further into what's called. So these first four have a, as, a, as a group of four are called the rupa jhana, and rupa means form. But in, for this purpose, it might be better. Well, I'll just say it, and you don't have to. You can forget it if you want. Uh, it, the, here, uh, rupa might be better translated as concept. It's uh, meditations of uh, conceptual meditation in a certain way. The um, then you go into the arupa or formless jhanas or conceptless jhanas in a sense. I, I'm not sure. I'm a little bit. But anyway, the, the next four, the, um, the five, six, seven, eight are called the arupa jhana, the formless jhanas. And here, it's partly formless because there's no body, there's no form, there's no objects anymore that you can identify. And, um, and the first one is um, infinite space. So you're sitting there and your body disappears. And when your body disappears, what's left? Space. So you let go of the equanimity and you let, the, let your attention get filled or sink into or disappear into the sense of just in space that's left. And you, and you become aware of infinite space. It's pretty far out. It's kind of like acid, you know, just like, wow, this is far out. But it's, but it's legal. <laughs> Sorry? So far. So far. <laughs> and then... Um, 
And then, um, but then, in order to know that there's infinite space, there has to be consciousness. So then you let go of the sense or the experience of space and tune into consciousness and how consciousness feels like it's infinite then. What's left then is infinite consciousness, boundless consciousness. And you've heard sometimes in spiritual, some spiritual traditions you talk about having cosmic consciousness or infinite consciousness. And I, I don't know what those people are talking about, but Buddhists will often say, oh, that what they're doing is they're falling into the seventh jhana of this infinite consciousness. And it, fe- it feels so far out. A lot of these stages of the jhanas, sometimes people will come and say, is this enlightenment? Or they're convinced, I got, I'm enlightened. Because it's so, you know, it's so compelling and so different from ordinary life. Um, so then there's this infinite consciousness. And then uh, from infinite consciousness, um, if you let go of consciousness, I mean, first you had space, right? <laughs> and you let go of space. So the consciousness that knew the space is left, right? But if consciousness, if you take away consciousness, what's left? What's left? Tell me. Well, what do we say? Nothing, nothing right. So nothing is left. So then is a state of no-thingness. So you can't talk about space because space is kind of like a thing or consciousness. There's no thingness. Now what happens if you let go of that? So the mind is getting more and more refined, more and more uh, simple. In a sense, you can say there's less and less activity going on in the mind. And uh, uh, so there's a a lot of things we normally take as being natural or, you know, just inherent part of the mind are actually involved functioning of the mind. For example, time or in space. So the sense of time kind of pretty much disappears in these states of absorptions. The sense of, 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 of uh, space, spatial sense disappears because it's an activity of the mind that creates time and space. So what happens when there's no that activity? Time and space disappears. It's not far out. And um, so when you let go of no thingness, Stay, uh, then um, there's a state called um, neither perception nor non-perception because you can't say there's perception there but you can't say there is no perception there you can't see kind of like can't quite say what it is but it's you know now the mind's gotten very very simple um, now you might be asking what in the world is this about and why should Buddhists want to do this you know and, and it's so different from ordinary life uh, one is uh, because, like you know, like Hillary said, uh, uh, Sir Edmund Hillary, uh, you know, because it's there. Another is that um, there are benefits from these states of concentration, especially the first four, are very, very healing. They're phenomenally healing states, and uh, if you can a- access to them, it's kind of like you're 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 accessing, um, you're kind of separating yourself from the world of suffering, of pain, of illness and sickness and into a state of tremendous sense of well-being and, and, and you can sometimes almost feel the, the healing or the goodness kind of moving through the body uh, in some of these states of concentration. But the Buddhist reason for it, it uh, also it's, it, 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 it starts to recondition the mind. Most of, most of I think human minds are conditioned phenomena for the most part. Um, 
we have certain kind of stimulus and we develop certain conditions in response to it. If, um, if every human being you meet for the next year uh, yells at you, and then a year from now you walk down the street and you meet a new person, you're probably going to brace yourself to be yelled at again because you've been conditioned by all those thousands of people during the first year. But maybe that person is going to whisper, right? So you don't know what's going to happen. But the mind is conditioned in some way. And so we condition ourselves in all kinds of ways. Some of them are very unfortunate. And it's really amazing to begin discovering how much, how we see ourselves, how we see the world around us, our perceptions of things, our values, our attitudes, are conditioned phenomena and are not inherent in the natural part of the whole system. And some of that conditioning is very unfortunate. We have a tremendous feeling of, you know, you know, neurosis and anxiety and psychosis and feeling of lack of self-worth and feeling of self-criticism, self-hate. And a lot of unfortunate things can be conditioned in our mind. It's as we get into these states of absorption, um, this, uh, what it, um, the suffering of these psychological states are replaced by a tremendous sense of well-being. And that well-being is like you're being bathed in goodness. And it reconditions, it re-educates the mind. It re-educates the kind of the cells in the cellular level, they say sometimes. And it's very helpful for some people to have that re-education process and to realize, to get a sense of themselves, uh, a, a perception of themselves as having the capacity of having all this goodness and joy. And it begins kind of to loosen up the grip of the old identities of what we have, who we, who we think we are. And the final thing, the reason for these deep states of concentration is so that the mind is stable enough, clear enough, focused enough, and simple enough that it, could, um, it can uh, identify the most subtle or in the most tenacious core places of clinging in the psyche. <coughs> Somehow to address those. And it's one thing to address, you know, our clinging to the clothes we wear. You know, that's kind of relatively easy, right? But there are uh, deep, deep clinging in the psyche that's usually not known by, you know, in the mind at street level, street consciousness, how we, how we walk around, that is really only accessible when the mind is really um, concentrated. And so, this deep concentration gives us both the stability to see it and gives us a sense of well-being. So when we look at this part of us, look at the clinging and letting go of it, we're doing that from a position of feeling good, feeling, feeling delight and feeling something, seeing something beautiful. If you see the depths of clinging and the need to let go of it, but you're feeling really afraid in general in your life, you might feel really afraid to let go then. So, you, so it's a really wonderful system where you have, you, 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 it brings you up to the edges of, of the deepest clinging, but you have a sense of well-being all around it as you do that. And then and it gives you access to these deep states of, uh, of clinging, and then the opportunity might arise to let go. And now, it's possible to let go at the deepest levels without doing these absorption stuff. It's very deep absorptions. Some teachers 
well, don't really care if you get absorbed or not, or don't even teach you to do that. Or some teachers occasionally even tell you to avoid doing that. And just focus directly on doing the vipassana work. Some teachers will say, no, you should before doing vipassana, you should do the, this absorption work. Get that under your belt first. There's different theories, and different theories are useful for different people. So it's not like one shoe fits all. Uh, it different, there's different minds. Some people have really good concentration minds. Some people have really good um, uh, you know, mindfulness minds. So it a little bit depends on you know what's suited for each temperament and each kind of person. Um, I wanted to give you the, an image for each of the first four jhanas that's used in the ancient discourses of the Buddha. The first uh, jhana is... Um, um, maybe I can remember it in order. The first uh, jhana... Uh, oh, the first jhana is, um, is um, like having a um, soap powder in the ancient world, they had soap powder like we have flour. And, and uh, in order to make soap, you would, they would moisten it and knead it until it got equally moist throughout and, and you got this workable, pliable, kind of kneadable um, ball of soap. It's kind of like if we're making bread dough. You get just the right amount of moisture in there and knead it and if it's pliable and workable. So first, you're kind of saturating the mind with moisture. So the mind is pliable and workable, soft. Luminous. And the second jhana is like uh, with, this, with this joy that arises is like this um, is like the mind is like a, a clear mountain lake or pond that has no water coming in from the surface, like no rivers going into it, but is fed fed uh, from from the inside from the from the bottom of the pond by this cool, refreshing spring. That's that the water is flowing up and suffusing through the through the pond, through the lake. So it's this inner kind of suffusion, inner kind of movement of refreshment. And the fourth jhana is um, the same lake, but here the mind is likened to a lotus pond, which is floating on top, has roots going down into the refreshing, the, uh, the refreshing kind of refreshment of the pond, but it's kind of a little bit above it all, kind of floating peacefully on top. It's not in the currents. And then the fourth jhana, the equanimity part, that's where the image of um, being wrapped in a soft cotton blanket, kind of soft, white, clean, pure cotton blanket, kind of enveloped in that. It's very soft, it's very nourishing, it's very comforting, it's very present. And there's also, in the being wrapped, there's no stimulus coming in from the environment around. Nothing's coming in, pinching at us. We're not aware of sounds so much, or sounds, or you know, smells or, you know, things, things outside because we're kind of contained in this very, very peaceful equanimous state. Some people fall into these um, jhanas seemingly accidentally. They're sitting there minding their own business and, poof, what happened? What was that? And then they pop out. Um, some people are a little bit frightened by this because they're so different. Some people are delighted. Some people get really attached to it. And... Um, some teachers say, oh, you have to be very careful with the jhanas because you, should, you can get really attached and get in trouble. I've known people who've gotten seemingly stuck in them. I've, um, and some people say, teachers say, don't, you, you can never really, there's never really, really a problem. You can get temporarily attached. 
that's a good attachment because you have this really good thing going. And then um, uh, as you continue practicing, you'll work through the attachment. It'll, it'll self-correct with time. <coughs> So for most people, these absorptions are not something you can just sit down and, you know, sit half an hour a day and expect that in a few weeks, you know, one, two, three, four, five, day, right? There most be, there are a couple of kind of people who have tremendous capacity for concentration, who can do it very easily. But it's very, those are very rare person. I think ordinary, or, a regular person, um, usually. Uh, it, it takes a lot of that. It takes a lot of dedication, a lot of effort. It's usually something that happens on retreats. You go on long retreats, and that's where the deeper, these deeper stages um, might begin happening. Some people will go on jhana retreats. There's specific retreats that are kind of meant for the developing concentration. Um, some people who will develop a daily sitting practice in a very consistent basis, day after day after day, and sit long enough, maybe an hour each day or day after day, Sometimes, uh, maybe after many, many years, their mind is stable enough and concentrate, you know, has the abilities there, so maybe they can be in touching into some of these jhanas. Um, some people will develop their capacity to get concentrated in deep way on retreat, and then once they learn it there, then it becomes easier to do it in daily life. It's maybe more accessible. You kind of the door has been opened. You know the route, so then you can kind of do it more easily af- afterwards. So the last thing I'll say is for the purposes of liberation, for the purposes of mindfulness and vipassana, it's not essential to go into these deep states. But one of the the principle that that some of these um, five factors come into play as you get concentrated, can be applied and used for developing concentration well before getting into the jhanas. So one of the things to do is, if you want to develop concentration, is to try to cultivate or develop or arouse or evoke or tune into feelings of well-being, of joy. And then let that joy grow as part of the effort of being concentrated. You're encouraged to feel joy when you're trying to develop, concentra- develop concentration. It's not always easy, but it might take a long time. But at some point, when you start feeling some inkling of sense of well-being or delight, or joy, that might be associated with the concentration, um, uh, let it be your cheerleader that's cheering you on, encouraging you on. This is great. Keep going. Kind of like a, bio, kind of like a biofeedback system. Okay, I'll stay. I'll stay focused on the breath, and kind of, and keep using the breath. Keep working the breath to see if I can let this joy grow. As the joy grows, it's incentive to stay focused on the breath. That makes sense. Today, I didn't give you any chance to ask questions. I hope that was okay. It was a lot to offer. I hope no one's confused or discouraged. Um, but I just kind of lay. I wanted to lay it all out so you'd know what that's about. And next week, um, we'll talk about the integration, a few
few other things, but it's integration of this concentration emphasis with the Vipassana work. Thank you.